Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, we're going to meet two researchers who study the unique hydrodynamic properties of shark skin, with the aim of making better hulls for unpiloted underwater vehicles. And we also chat with an expert on solar geoengineering about the pros and cons of injecting aerosols into the stratosphere to cool the Earth. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics. Are you a scientist working in renewable energy, wearable sensor technology, display materials, or infrastructure sustainability? You have the opportunity to present your research at the world's leading forum on electrochemistry and solid-state science. Submit your abstract by April 8th for the 242nd Electrochemical Society meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, in October 2022. Visit the ECS website at electrochem.org for details about abstract submission. And join ECS in accelerating science. Thanks to our enthusiasm for burning fossil fuels, Earth's climate is warming, and the negative effects of this change are now being seen in many parts of the planet. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions is an obvious way of stopping global warming, but success will require overcoming significant technological, economic, and political challenges. As a result, some scientists believe that geoengineering which is the large-scale modification of Earth's natural systems, could play a role in the mitigation of global warming. I'm joined down the line by Wake Smith of Yale University and Harvard University to talk about solar geoengineering. Hi, Wake. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. And so, Wake, what is solar geoengineering and, and how could it be done Solar geoengineering is an attempt via man-made activity to mimic an effect on the planet's climate that volcanoes, large volcanoes, occasionally have, which is that they spew into the atmosphere uh, sulfur dioxide, which uh, becomes, uh, after a few weeks, um, sulfuric acid, and in that form deflects sunlight uh, back out of the climate system. Uh, the buildup of greenhouse gases prevents heat from escaping the earth, and that's why the earth is warming. If we can't mitigate our emissions quickly enough and the earth heats up, an alternative method by which to manage the symptoms, but not the underlying cause of climate change, would be solar geoengineering, whereby we are reducing by one or two percent the amount of energy that is coming in via sunlight and balancing the Earth's radiative budget in that way. And and a, cu a couple of years ago, I think it was in, was it in 2020 or maybe 2018, you uh, and a colleague came up with a, a plan that you call SAIL-1 um, for doing solar geoengineering. Can you describe that? 
Sure, it was 2018, and that paper looked at the practicalities of how we might actually do it. If we don't treat it so much as a theory, but rather as a mission that we uh, needed to undertake on behalf of the world, how would one actually do it? The thing that makes it tricky is that one would need to deploy these aerosols at a high altitude, about 20 kilometers, which is roughly twice the altitude at which your Boeing or Airbus airliner crews, and getting a very large mass of material to that high height in the atmosphere is a novel aeronautical challenge, but one that is entirely doable. So what this paper looked at is how you would do it. And indeed, we determined that balloons, rockets, big cannons, uh, um, existing aircraft, that none of those would serve that mission, but that one could easily design new aircraft that would be the size of a commercial airliner, but could fly at the high altitudes that spy planes fly at, and thereby haul large masses of material to the place in the atmosphere where we would need to put them in order to do this. So, so that plan, SAIL-1, looked at 20 kilometers, but um, you've got a paper that's just come out that looks at some options for uh, dispersing uh, these aerosols at 25 kilometers. Why do you want to, or why would we want to go up to 25 kilometers? Is there a significant benefit? There is. So to the extent that we were to put this material at 25 uh, kilometers rather than 20, it would endure in the stratosphere for yet longer, not quite twice as long, but, but 150, 170% as long. And to the extent that the uh, aerosols remain aloft for a longer period of time, you need to put less of them there to get the same radiative uh, benefit. So scientists who are looking at this in computer models have no problem changing the assumed deployment altitude from 15 kilometers to 20 to 25 to 30, whatever you want to set the dial at. But if one thinks about it as an aeronautical mission, uh, those altitudes are very different from one another and the difference matters a lot. But there have been many studies in the last decade that have looked at the prospect of deploying at 25 kilometers rather than the customarily assumed 20 kilometers. And so what this study did was look at the aeronautical practicalities of doing that. How could you do that? The quick summary of the study was, don't go there, um, that the radiative benefits that would accrue from putting less material there are outweighed by the aeronautical uh, downsides in terms, firstly, of cost, that it's just much more expensive to design aircraft that can fly in that even thinner altitude at 25 kilometers than can do at 20 kilometers. Basically, we're now above the altitude that fixed-wing, self-propelled, air-breathing jets can fly at. So we need other kinds of lofting systems to get to that altitude. And those lofting systems carry a lot less payload per sortie. And so even though the uh, radiative benefit of deployment at that altitude is greater per 
pound of material, uh, it costs so much more to get it there that it is in the end a more costly solution. Yet more determinative than that, though, is the fact that the safety hazards of flying at that high altitude are much greater than those at 20 kilometers. And so we're putting the air crew, uh, uninvolved people on the ground, the uh, airship itself, uh, all at risk uh, in ways that are unnecessary. So after looking at it, what I'm telling scientists is it's not a good uh, trade-off to continue to model deployment at that altitude. And I really enjoyed um, reading your paper about this, um, particularly because you you describe um, five possible ways of getting the material up to twenty five kilometers, and, and and some of them are, are very clever. Can you can you just give us a quick description of those five ways? I'm guessing we'll probably never use them, but uh, nonetheless, I think they're really interesting to talk about. Sure. So this originated with a team of former Boeing uh, aircraft design engineers with whom I sort of huddled. And we started with the question, if we had to deploy at this altitude, how could we get there? And we came up with five uh, sort of spitball ideas that we then developed the aeronautics on and the uh, the weights and the costs associated with them. The first one is taking the uh, SAIL-01, the Stratospheric Aerosol Injection Lofter-01 aircraft that we had designed for deployment at 20,000 feet, or excuse me, 20 kilometers, and tried to determine if that could reach 25. And the answer is it cannot. It doesn't have enough thrust. It doesn't have enough wing area. Uh, but if you put a rocket in the back of that airplane, flew it under its own power, on, uh, uh, under the power of its engines to 20 kilometers and then lit the rocket, that would give you the additional thrust and speed to get to 25 kilometers. So that was uh, one concept. A second concept would be taking a jet fighter aircraft like an F-15 and putting it into a ballistic climb uh, where it, 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 it basically stands on its tail and shoots up to 25 kilometers. And that plane can do that. And, and test aircraft have uh, gone yet higher than that in, uh, uh, in, in, in testing that aircraft. The problem is with both of those uh, that the engines would flame out before you get to 25 kilometers. Um, and so as you're coming back down, you would need air restarts of your engines in order to then uh, make it, uh, you know, execute your landing. And if we're doing hundreds of thousands of these flights a year, the risk of failing to get air starts is, is high. Uh, but maybe I'm getting to the details to, to, to return to the list of options. A third one is a mothership uh, aircraft with a daughtership rocket, uh, just like the Virgin Atlantic um, uh, or Virgin uh, uh, Galactic, rather, um, uh, system that took Richard Branson to the edge of space some while ago. So a, a, a customary aircraft, a 747 or uh, the, the White Knight II catamaran that uh, Branson has designed uh, would drop at 35,000 feet a rocket, that a small rocket propelled uh, 
uh, craft that could uh, zoom up to the stratosphere. A fourth one was a replica or, or a, um, uh, a recreation of the old SR-71 Blackbird spy plane that f- flew at Mach 3, but uh, at that super fast speed was able to get up to 25 kilometers. And then finally, the most crazy concept that we looked at, which proved to make no sense in a variety of ways, uh, taking a 747 freighter aircraft and mounting two huge mortars in it. So you'd fly up to the normal cruising altitude of that plane, 35,000 feet or so, and then you would shoot shells up to 65,000 feet to 20 kilometers, and the shell would burst and deploy in that way. But we looked at each of those concepts to try to see if any of them seemed very promising uh, relative to deployment at 20 kilometers. And and so, as you mentioned, your conclusion was don't bother going to um, to 25 kilometers. And and you're back to your SAIL-01 proposal at 20 kilometers. And the the interesting thing I I thought about SAIL-01 is that it seems to be a relatively cheap way of reducing global temperatures by one degree. I think I I did a, a back of the envelope calculation, and I think it would cost five dollars per person that's per person in the world um per year to achieve a one degree drop in temperature and that i mean that that seems like a bargain to me Do, do you think that ultimately we will have to do this well firstly let me say i hope not i'm not presenting this system as a get out of jail free card. Um, Solar geoengineering does not cure the underlying disease of climate change. It merely manages one of the worst symptoms of it, which is that it gets hot. And solar geoengineering could solve that problem at a a level of cost, as you note, that is incredibly cheap compared to the cost of decarbonization or the cost of adaptation or the cost of sucking carbon back out of the air and burying it underground, solar geoengineering would be two to three orders of magnitude cheaper than any of those um, uh, solutions. Again, the problem, though, is that all of those are solutions. Adaptation isn't, I guess, but decarbonization is, direct air capture is. Um, Solar geoengineering merely manages a symptom. And so I wouldn't propose it as an alternative to decarbonization. Rather, its best use would be in a world where, despite all of our best intentions, we don't decarbonize as quickly as we need to. Climate change doesn't stay within the comfortable 1.5 degrees Celsius range that the IPCC would urge us to stick with, but rather we heat the, the planet to three degrees Celsius or more, which would have huge negative impacts on future generations. If the world finds itself in that sort of a world, then solar geoengineering is the tool that we currently have some understanding of that would be most effective in quickly reducing those temperatures. Um, But uh, we've done no field research on it. I'm researching the practicalities of it, but still in a 
laboratory rather than uh, in the field. And until we begin to do field research, we won't know whether it has very negative consequences that may make it worse than the disease we're trying to cure with it. So again, I don't um, uh, propose this as a cost-free, risk-free solution to climate change. For me, it's more nearly a fire extinguisher, whereby we don't want the world to be on fire, but if the world's on fire, uh, this could help manage some of the worst impacts. Now, you mentioned some of the of the mission-related dangers in uh, solar geoengineering at, at 25 kilometers, and I'm guessing there's probably some dangers at 20 kilometers as well. What are, what are some of the broader concerns that, that scientists have about uh, solar geoengineering? I mean, for, for example, d the, the material that you put into the atmosphere, does it does it stay there for a very, very long time? Are we stuck with it up there? Or w would it fall out relatively quickly if we suddenly decided that it wasn't a good idea? The latter thing. So uh, if we put this material up in the troposphere, the, the uh, area of the atmosphere closest to the Earth, uh, it would rain back down in, in a few days or a week with the next rainstorm, basically. Whereas if the, the, the reason to put it up at 20 kilometers is it is then in the stratosphere. And in the stratosphere, it would endure for uh, 12 to 18 months. So if we uh, wanted to stop it, if it did turn out to have negative physical impacts that we didn't anticipate but don't want, we could stop it. And in a year to 18 months, everything would go back to the path that it was otherwise on. Uh, so, so it can be stopped quickly in that way. There's a, um, a, 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 an important detail there that maybe we'll get to, but... Um, the, the quickness with which it can be reversed is a dramatic uh, uh, a contrast to the endurance of CO2 in the atmosphere, the carbon that we're putting in the atmosphere. That will stay for centuries to millennia. And so an unfortunate thing that the world broadly doesn't understand about climate change, science understands it, but the general public does not, is that getting to net zero won't stop, uh, won't reverse climate change. It won't bring temperatures back to the way they were. It will simply stop it from getting hotter, but it will stay at that peak temperature for centuries. Um, uh, and, and it's in those centuries that this intervention might be something that the world would call for. And and is this done on a, a sort of a global level or a local level? Because, you know, I would have thought, um, you know, for example, uh, people in northern Europe, in Canada might not be too keen on on, you know, having the, the amount of solar radiation hitting them reduced, whereas, um, you know, maybe people in the southern U.S., southern Europe, Africa, India might be happy to have less uh, solar energy falling on them. Or, or, or maybe not. I mean, is it, would it have to be a truly global thing or could, could, you, um, could you target um, the aerosols um, so that they, they don't have a, a, an adverse effect on, on certain regions of the world? Well, uh, 
you're getting on to perhaps the biggest problem with this with this uh, uh, tool, uh, which is the governance of it. The uh, the, the, the way we currently understand this is that it would need to be a global intervention. Uh, it would need to be done for the whole world, both Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. Uh, the Earth, of course, rotates on an axis. So the East-West mixing of this material is very efficient, as, again, large volcanoes demonstrate. They pop off somewhere, but pretty soon they're all over the, all around the world at that latitude. Um, if we put the material up into the stratosphere, as we've discussed, it would go from the equator to the poles via a, a uh, circulation called the Brewer-Dobson circulation. So you would get it mixing east-west, you would get it mixing poleward, uh, equator to poleward, and it would cover the whole earth. Um, but the governance structure by which to provide legitimacy to a global climate intervention effort, that's way beyond our grasp today. And so the most um, difficult issue to conceive how we could solve, a guy like me could solve the logistics. I, I, I you know, with a, with a bunch of help, but, but I could do this. I could build the planes. I could, um, you know, procure the aerosols. I could get this material out there. Um, but, but I have no legitimacy by which to do that. And what structure it is that's going to uh, get the informed consent of approximately the entire world uh, to ensure that we're doing this in a way that the world is supportive of. I just have no idea how we would um, be able to do that. You also asked, though, if this can be done locally. Our current understanding is not really, but that is something that I intend to look into in much greater detail uh, in the coming year. Well, that's great, Wake. Thanks, thanks for that uh, that discussion. Really fascinating stuff. Great. You can read more about Wake's research on solar geoengineering at twenty five kilometers in a research update on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline: Higher Altitude Solar Geoengineering Brings No Cost Benefit Study Predicts. And in that article, you'll find a link to Wake's paper. Thanks for being on the podcast, Wake, and, and I understand you've got a new book coming out about uh, climate change. I do indeed. It grows out of a course uh, that I teach at Yale, which is, insofar as I'm aware, the world's first undergraduate survey course on climate interventions. The book is called Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Interventions, and it will be published next week by Cambridge University Press. Well, that's great. I, I look forward to seeing that. Sharks are wondrous creatures, and one fascinating aspect of their anatomy is their skin. This is made up of overlapping tooth-like microstructures called dermal denticles, which reduce turbulence when sharks swim. Physics World's James Dacey meets Nicole Hsu and Jason Getter of the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory, who explain why they are developing sharkskin-inspired surfaces for unpiloted underwater vehicles. Uh, 
Okay, guys, so your research involves designing surfaces for unmanned underwater vehicles uh, inspired by shark skin. And in particular, it's the microstructures called denticles. So what is it about those structures on a shark skin that allow the shark to glide so effortlessly through the water? So shark skin is covered in these scales called denticles, as you mentioned, which are these microstructures that kind of look like medieval shields, so, you know, the kind with the triangular shape and the sharp edges. <laughs> and these denticle surfaces really help reduce drag and increase lift to improve the hydrodynamic performance of real shark skin, as well as have these natural anti-fouling properties to prevent bacterial buildup on their skin. And so it's inspired by sharks. How did you actually study the sharks in the first place? I mean, presumably you don't have a shark in the lab. So is it, <laughs> is it based on studying video footage of sharks in water or, or are you taking samples of the skin and testing it in the lab? Right. No sharks were harmed in the making of this project. <laughs> but there's been, a, exactly, there's been a lot of prior literature on studying shark skin themselves. So people have looked at live samples of shark skin as well as taken the samples directly from the sharks. They've also taken samples of shark skins from museums and studied the microstructure by looking at the surface profilometry. So you can really get a close-up individual view of these denticles as well as the patterns of these denticles on various areas of the sharks. Luckily, all of this prior research has been done before, and so we can really jumpstart from that and look at what people have done in terms of bio-inspired designs, as well as real shark skin to develop our own computer-aided design or CAD models of shark skin. Our group at the Naval Research Lab is, uh, is the Laboratories for Computational Physics and Fluid Dynamics, so we have uh, a large interest in uh, developing the computational codes to, to model um, the, the fluid flows around some of these systems. And we leverage that to, uh, to use as a design tool um, in, for some of these problems. So uh, with the, at this, the state that um, Dr. Shu's research is at right now, we're validating our computational models against her experimental results. Uh, and we're, we're then looking to use uh, the, uh, the computational fluid dynamics tools to inform future designs will help Dr. Shu with her, her future designs uh, for these identical structures. Um, so it's a nice uh, combination of computational and experimental work that, um, that we're doing. And Nicole brings a lot of that experimental background to our group, which has been fantastic. Um, and would you say to people in the lab, there's a mixture of backgrounds in terms of maybe some physicists and, and bioscientists as well? Well, the, the Naval Research Laboratory is, uh, you know, it's, it's a large laboratory, a lot of different divisions with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, various backgrounds for those researchers. Within our laboratories for computational physics, our group, um, it's, it's a heavily computational background. Nicole and I um, have more of an experimental background. Um, but, uh, but in all of our projects, we, uh, we try to partner with uh, researchers from, from other groups at NRL, as well as, of course, researchers outside of the Naval Research Lab in our, in our work um, so that we can really get that uh, depth and breadth of experience um, in all of the disciplines that we might want to uh, look at for uh, you know, whatever the problem is of interest, in this case, um, you know, efficiency and drag reduction for underwater vehicles. So. So on a day-to-day -day basis in, in the lab, what are you actually doing? So talk me through a, a typical experiment. Mm -hmm. So there were a couple of different things that we wanted to test first. One was what are the different capabilities and limitations of additive manufacturing technologies so that we could even 3D print these shark skins. 
And so we tested two different types of 3D printers. One is a polyjet, which is kind of like an inkjet printer, but it builds layer by layer. And the second is a digital light processing printer, which also builds layer by layer, but it uses a technique where it starts with a vat of resin or a goopy liquid, and then the printer uses light projected in the pattern that you want to cure for each layer. So at the end of the day, you get something like you know Godzilla emerging from the depths of the water, but more like a hardened resin coming from the vat of liquid. And so both of these different 3D printing technologies have different pros and cons. And the main one is that the Polyjet has a larger build volume, so it can print something the size of two sheets of paper, for example, but at a lower resolution versus the DLP printer, which can print high resolution down to a single micron, but the print itself is only the size of a business card. And I also tested two different finishes, so a matte versus a glossy finish. And we actually found that the glossy finish produced the sharpest features on the denticles, whereas the matte finish kind of looked puffy like a like a marshmallow. Um, so once you have 3D printed these test panels, uh, how, how do you actually test them? So we tested various denticle patterns on a hydrofoil, which is shaped like an airplane wing. So if you imagine you're looking at the side of an airplane and you see the cross section of the wing, the denticles are on the panels of the underside of the wing that we can switch out interchangeably. And then we can vary things like the speed of the plane or the angle of attack. So for positive angles of attack, picture the plane during liftoff. Denticles are on the bottom of the wing, which is the pressure side directly in the flow. And for negative angles of attack, the plane is now landing. And so the denticles on the bottom are on the suction side of the foil. So in our experiments in a water tunnel at the Naval Academy, we had a foil with the denticles on one side where we could test different surfaces and we could vary the flow speeds of the water from one to four meters per second, as well as the angles of attack from negative 25 to 25 degrees. So in this setup, we could then compare denticles to a smooth control surface. When we compared the smooth control with a linear denticle pattern, as well as a staggered denticle pattern, we found that both of the denticle panels actually had improved lift. But there were also some instances in which the denticles increased drag and others where it decreased drag, especially with the staggered pattern. So consistently, the denticles tended to perform better at negative angles of attack when the plane is in that landing formation with the denticles at the bottom of the wing. But there are certain flow conditions in which the denticles perform better or worse. Just thinking about the way it's inspired by a shark, you know, so it's a very dynamic thing, this biological system with the shark skin. Um, is, is that a challenge in the lab, trying to sort of understand um, the way that these denticles perhaps actually deform in a, in a turbulent water situation? Is, and, and is that something you've been able to um, study or recreate in any way? There are a lot of complicated factors in terms of how to design these denticles and how to print them. So we wanted to test things like different denticle sizes, shapes, spacings, and materials. And there's only so much time that we have. So there's a couple of things that we were focusing on first, like the staggered versus linear pattern. But in the future, we do want to test other capabilities. Um, we have looked at the flexibility of the different materials. So what happens when we print all the denticles in a rigid surface, which is similar to how shark skin actually is, these rigid denticles on a, a more flexible skin, versus when we print the entire denticle structures on a, a flexible surface. And it turns out that there's not too much of a difference, but all of this is still ongoing work. So we're looking into it more. Okay, and just I suppose looking at the aims of the research, the the longer term aims, 
Um, so you mentioned as well as being more efficient and uh, faster, it could also have help with anti-fouling properties. So I guess keeping surfaces clean and, and, and can it also make the surface of these vehicles more robust? Um, you know, what, what, what are the things you hope to achieve with the research? I think the next big step is looking at anti-fouling properties. So that's not something that we've actively done yet with this 3D printed surface design, but it is something that we're interested in, in terms of what are the actual size constraints and how can we you know, seed these surfaces with bacteria and test, are there these bacterial biofilms that build up or not? This has a wide variety of applications in different ocean exploration fields. As you mentioned, we could put these um, surfaces onto underwater vehicles to improve their hydrodynamic performance or look at anti-biofouling. But actually, Jason, did you want to join in with anything? I was going to say to the previous question um, that um, where you were asking about how you know sharks are constantly moving and it's a turbulent environment, we've uh, our group at, at the Naval Research Lab has long had an interest in uh, bio-inspired uh, systems for for underwater vehicle applications, and um, we've we've done a lot of research on propulsion and control mechanisms uh, for those vehicles uh, that were inspired by fish fins. And uh, so we, uh, we're looking to, to take some of Nicole's research uh, and moving forward, um, putting, putting these denticles on moving and deforming surfaces to see uh, not only how it affects drag reduction, but also if there might be some propulsive benefits to having these sort of microstructures on, uh, on these moving, moving surfaces underwater. So I guess you're studying it over a range of scales then, by the sound of it. It is over a range of scales. Our research has primarily focused on uh, what I'll call small uh, unmanned underwater vehicles uh, on the order of about, uh, you know, one to two meters in length um, or even less in some cases. Um, but certainly there are uh, applications on, on larger scales for, for identical structures um, as, you know, in, in terms of uh, fuel efficiency and savings uh, there. Mm -hmm. So. Okay, and, and so with the applications of these underwater vehicles, I mean, we can understand there's there's clear military um, potential there because of the stealthiness and speed, etc. Uh, but looking at perhaps other applications in the research field, as these vehicles improve, what what are some of the scientific questions that uh, we we can tackle in in more effective ways with these vehicles? Broadly speaking. Power consumption is one of the bottlenecks in robotics and engineering. So if we can reduce power costs by using these denticles in strategic locations on underwater vehicles, then we can potentially save energy and improve the overall performance of these vehicles. So specifically for ocean applications, we can then uh, do more in terms of ocean exploration or tracking climate change by having longer missions underwater for both naval and civilian applications. How far away are you from the sort of final application of these technologies? I mean, do they emerge directly from your lab or do you then inform, um, say, engineering companies, for example? What, what's the, uh, what stage of research is this? We're still in the hydrodynamic testing stage on individual foils. And the next step, as Jason mentioned, was to apply these um, passive denticle structures with active flow control me methods. Um, but we'd also like to apply these onto fish-inspired robots, um, as well as larger underwater vehicles. So I can imagine that this might be a, a real application that we could test in the ocean within five or 10 years, but we're still in the introductory phases of this type of research. 
Yeah, and I would certainly agree with what uh, what Dr. Shu said there. Um, you know, we have a number of ongoing programs uh, internally at the Naval Research Lab that we're looking to um, um, to to work with Nicole to to implement some of these uh, or integrate some of these tentacle structures onto um, propulsive surfaces, onto vehicle uh, hulls for drag reduction. Um, and uh, and you know then then certainly there are potential applications uh, as we mentioned for uh, larger vehicle systems both uh, underwater and uh, and surface vessels um, where you might see you know huge gains in in fuel savings and, and there are a lot of uh, big cost implications there. So I'll just say that we're we're very excited about uh, some of the initial results that uh, uh, Dr. Shu has um, analyzed, and uh, and we're looking forward to some future directions that her research can take. And, and there was a famous uh, case a few years ago with the I think it was the speedo swimsuits, which were inspired by um, again I think it was shark skin. Um, so I know eventually they were banned because they were <laughs> the technology was just too good and it was giving too much of an advantage. Um, but is that something, you know, something like that could still be used for, again, military or say lifeguard applications? Um, does your research potentially feed into that as well to, to clothing or, or is it very much a different technique we're talking about here? I think this has lots of broad applications, including clothing, um, but that would be a little bit more on the materials engineering side. And actually, speeding, speaking of that Speedo case, uh, a researcher tested that versus real shark skin versus bioengineered shark skin. And it turns out that it didn't give much hydrodynamic performance benefits to the swimmers themselves. There, there are certainly broad applications for our work in terms of clothing, but also things like applying these denticles onto aerial vehicles. Okay, guys. Well... Thanks for your time today and good luck developing the research. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Nicole Shu, Jason Getter, Wake Smith, and James Dacey for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks with Marcus Bueller of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who is translating living structures into sound and vice versa. He's created harmonies informed by the structure of spider webs, which could help uncover the secrets of spider silk. And more recently, his team translated the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus into sound to visualize its vibrational properties. This episode of Stories is called Music from Our Material World, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.